This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 120. Are you investing and banking at retail prices? Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious. Be stable. Be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Wow, is it really only five days till Christmas? This is getting crazy. I hope you've been able to get all the shopping you need done and all the this and that's to take care of, all the errands and whatnot. Many of you might be traveling and maybe you're listening right now and on an airplane or driving to family or friends or whatnot. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. And I'm so glad to be a part of that with you. It's a privilege, as always, to be along with you on the journey. So, and, and in fact, I'd love to talk to you about some some of what we might be all spending some time on right now as you're listening to this episode. Uh, I'd love to discuss shopping with you. Yes, it's the most wonderful shopping season of the year. And it is the holiday season, so we are gearing up for that most wonderful shopping season of the year. And I'd love to talk to, talk to you about that, but not in the way you might think. As always, this is not your average financial podcast. So do you want to get into a place in your savings and investing that maybe you'd be able to step away from your day job and maybe even live your golden years right now, like retire right now? That's awesome. That's a great goal. In 1981, Raymond Carver wrote the best-selling book, quote, what we talk about when we talk about love. That's a great book. But I'd love to ask the question, what is it we're talking about when we talk about money? And investing. So for many of us, uh, and maybe you too, investing simply means buying stocks and bonds and mutual funds in our stock market brokerage account or our retirement accounts like 401ks and IRAs. And the reality is that no matter what you do to reach your financial objectives, it will take money. Okay, there's just no getting around it. It's going to take money. And how do we how do we get that money in the best way possible? Most of us are taught at least the average way of thinking, is to simply invest in the stock market. And they say this, the most straightforward, easiest way, and the best way, they say, to prepare for your financial future is to just plunk it all in the stock market and wait. And there's nothing wrong with the stock market, per se. However, if you're using a tax-deferred retirement account, remember that you will be taxed on that money in the future. And if taxes go up, that's going to be a bigger burden for you. That means more money is going to be in there for you to be able to hit that golden magic number when you can retire. When you need that money the most, right? It's going to be a bigger tax burden if taxes go up in the future. Unless you expect to be poor, it'll actually be worse off if you've deferred those taxes. Why? Well, remember, if taxes, even if taxes are the same in the future, if you're taking you know, a big chunk of money, meaning you were successful in growing your investments, you're now taking a big chunk of money out to spend in retirement, that means you're going to get taxed on that big chunk of money. How many of us today who are investing for retirement would plan on or expect to retire poor? But literally, that is the game plan. That is the outcome. That is the expectation of traditional investment advisors. And I think that's just not right, honestly. Uh, Maybe you do too. I don't know. If you invest in a brokerage account rather than a retirement account, 
you might get taxed on a lower rate called capital gains rates, as long as they're still around, right? Whereas an IRA or 401k will be taxed on income tax rates. So income tax rates are higher than capital gains rates. And a much higher tax bracket system is built around your income tax rate, okay? In the United States especially. So we like to call 401ks, IRAs, and similar investments, we like to call those traditional amateur retail investing. So that's traditional amateur retail investing. This type of investing is investing in things that, you know, maybe you've heard of before, mutual funds, for example, typically in a tax-deferred retirement account, like a 401k or IRA. Now, I said we'd be talking about shopping today, so let's get to that, right? What about retail shopping? Think about retail shopping. When you shop retail, what are you doing? Well, you're paying full price, right? When you buy a mutual fund or stock on the open market, you're paying retail full price for that stock or investment. Here's what I mean. When you sit down with a typical financial planner or investment advisor, did you know that they are literally not allowed to show you more than a 10% return on your money? That should tell you something. When they're legally bound by what they can show you in terms of a return, no more than 10%, that should tell you something about what you should expect from the stock market. And I guess it's, it bears asking the question, why does Dave Ramsey, uh, a famous radio host, still quote us at 12% a year on our mutual funds when legally advisor, advisors who might represent Dave Ramsey aren't even allowed to do that? But that's for another episode, a couple of episodes. Now, we might know that most retail investors, if you're a keen listener, like I'm sure you are, of this podcast, you'll know that real investors of retail investing are doing closer to 3.5%, according to Dalbar, the independent research firm Dalbar, who does an annual study on real investment returns of actual investors. So if retail investing is giving us such poor results, then why do we keep doing it? But before I get to that question, Remember that with retail shopping, shopping now, you have a lot of middlemen in between you and what you want to buy, okay? They want a piece of that action. With shopping, for example, maybe you're shopping at the mall. Remember those? You're paying for that piece of clothing, yeah, that blouse or whatever, yes, but you're actually helping pay for the real estate space at the mall, the lights and the water bills of the mall. You're paying for the marketing and commercial advertising, of the brand that made that blouse or sweater or whatever, and you're paying the salary of the truck driver who took it from the warehouse to the mall, you're even helping pay for the shipping container and the boat that maybe carried it across seas if it was made in another country, for example. So all of that gets wrapped up into the full price of retail shopping. The same problem of fees and expenses impact retail investing. For example, you have annual fund operating expenses. These are ongoing fees toward the cost of paying managers, accountants, legal fees, marketing of the fees uh, of the funds, and so forth. You've got shareholder fees. These are sales commissions and other one-time costs when you buy or sell mutual fund shares. Then you've got ongoing fund operating fees. These are unavoidable. You'll have to pay something just to keep the lights on at the fund management offices, but different kinds of funds require different overhead costs, right? These fees also known as mutual fund expense ratios or advisory fees, might be anywhere from a quarter of a percent all the way up to 1.5% of your total investment in the fund each and every single 
year. So those listed ongoing costs that I mentioned might include management fees. These are costs to pay fund managers and investment advisors. It might include 12B1 fees, which are capped at 1%, okay? But these fees pay for the cost of marketing and selling the fund and other shareholder services, like getting the mailing out to your annual statements and so forth. Other expenses might include custodial fees, legal fees, accounting fees, transfer agent expenses, and other administrative costs. So the shareholder fees might include sales load costs. These are commissions that you pay when you buy or sell mutual funds. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Redemption fees, these are funds that may charge this fee if you sell shares within a short period of time after purchasing them. So this could include anywhere from a few days, okay, to over a year. So you get that fee charged on you if you buy a mutual fund and then sell it a month later or even a year later. So depending on that fund, uh, that could be one of the bigger fees attached to your mutual fund, your retail purchase of that mutual fund. Those are called redemption fees. And that's according to FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. I'm going to keep going. There's three more. Exchange fees. These are fees that are usually charged to shareholders if they exchange or transfer shares of one fund offered by the same investment company to another fund. Okay, so if investment company X sells three funds and I buy one and then I buy another one, transfer one for another, I'm going to get charged a fee for that just to shuffle some paperwork around at the investment company. There's an account fee, a fee charged to maintain your account, often if the balance falls below a specified minimum investment amount. So, you know, you thought that banks were the only ones that charged you that minimum account balance fee. No, your investment accounts are doing the same thing. But it's hidden, it's uh, obfuscated inside that mutual fund. Then finally, you've got the purchase fee. This is a fee paid to the fund at the time of purchase. This is distinct from front-end sales loads, which is paid to the broker, okay? So you've got the broker, but then you've got the fund itself. Remember, they're getting paid because they're not doing this for charity. They're getting paid just like the investment advisor or broker would be who sold you the fund. So clearly, <laughs> you want to think outside of that retail investing space. That's like buying your investments at the mall, maybe one of the most expensive ways to shop for your financial independence. But what, what if we could do better than retail investing? What if you could invest at wholesale prices? So if anyone listening, uh, maybe you, uh, have a Sam's Club or Costco membership, or maybe you shop at a factory outlet mall, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a reason why these stores are super popular. We love that feeling of getting a great discount. We love buying in bulk, at least I do. I don't know if my wife Katrina does, you know, if I'm bringing home, you know, five gallons of almond milk or something like that, or uh, mayonnaise or whatever, uh, that's gonna be, Certainly, when you buy in bulk, it's going to cut out some of those retail expenses. So you can do the same thing with retail or wholesale investing. Let's talk about that. Let's, here's an example of retail investing versus wholesale investing. So if you were to buy real estate at the retail level, I would call that a REIT or a real estate investment trust, R-E-I-T. That's sort of like a mutual fund, but it, instead of holding stocks like Apple or Google, it's going to hold real estate, literal addresses, properties. Inside that fund, real estate investment trusts are a mutual fund that hold the ownership of real estate. Okay, And so when you buy retail investments at, with real estate, you're using a REIT. Okay, And you can buy those on the uh, public market. 
when you buy wholesale or direct, as we'll get into in a minute, you can really increase your returns and you can lower your risk and increase your tax benefits all at the same time. So let's get into some of that. With retail uh, real estate, with real estate buying wholesale, this might be something like a private offering or a private equity fund. When we buy real estate at wholesale prices, we're gonna have someone else running the apartment complex or managing the rent or the leaky faucets, okay? When you're buying wholesale, in other words, you've cut out the REITs, you've, bought out, you've cut out Goldman Sachs or whoever, and the investment advisor and all those fund fees and load costs and sales costs that I mentioned earlier, you're cutting all that out and you're getting your share of your returns back in your pocket. So that's avoiding the retail real estate investment strategy and doing something more like wholesale retail investing. Wholesale real estate investing. That sounds really great, right? But there's a downside to wholesale shopping too. The trouble with wholesale shopping is that you tend to get last year's model or it might be something you bought with a defect. I've certainly done that from outlet malls and you know, certainly even the big box stores aren't without selling us uh, a, a brick or something. If you buy wholesale, you're not necessarily getting the top of the line model. Now, how does that wholesale breakdown work with real estate investing? What do you give up when you invest wholesale? Well, in general, most of the time you're gonna give up access to the cash, liquidity. You're giving up that liquidity. It's not easy to get in and out of real estate when you're buying wholesale or even direct, right? Whereas when you buy and sell your REIT or your mutual fund with real estate in it, you can buy and sell almost any day you wish if the market's open. So the government is aware of that restriction of liquidity or access. So they're gonna really put restrictions on who can do that wholesale investing. So just like your Costco membership might keep other people out of Costco, you know, you're gonna to have to be considered a special investor, what they call an accredited investor, in order to be able to purchase wholesale real estate investments. So that accredited investor is a, is a family married couple who has a million dollar net worth or has a $300,000 a year income, okay? So many wholesale investments are gonna require a giant chunk of cash, for example, 100 grand or more, just to get into the investment. And that's gonna cut a lot of people out right away. And they're gonna ask you to keep that 100 grand or more locked up with their investment for several years, most of the time. So if you're not accredited, right, if you're not an accredited investor and you can't do official wholesale investing, are you, are you uh, consigned to the retail shops, right? Are you still gonna, are you only able to do uh, retail investments like stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? No, no. You can do other things still. You can shop direct. You can do your shopping direct. You can do the same with your investments. So the government does not restrict you from being a retail investor, and it also does not restrict you from being a direct investor. You can buy your real estate directly. You can simply buy a piece of real estate and physically owning and operating that real estate as a business. So you're allowed to go out and buy your real estate apartment building. Nobody's stopping you, right? You're the operator and you wouldn't be paying anybody else, okay? With direct investing, you increase your return, but obviously you've also super duper increased your risk. It's an increased risk, obviously, because it's your own money. And if this whole thing goes south, you could lose it all. 
But on the other hand, you have complete control. When you have complete control, you can find ways to reduce your risk, okay? At the retail level, your control is your access to your cash. Remember, you can buy and sell in and out of that real estate investment trust anytime you want. It's your money. You can buy and sell anytime you want. At the wholesale level, as with like syndications or private equity funds, you might be able to influence the investor's choices, but you know you don't have as much liquidity or control. At the direct level, you, you're back in the driver's seat. You have control over the investment itself. You have the address. You have the brick and mortar uh, in your hands, right? You can paint that wall any, one, any color you want. You can rent to anybody you choose. You can choose what bank you use, for example, or you can use a loan at all or not at all. You can choose what types of renters you let in, you know, but it's also pretty neat um, at, the, at the direct level is that you can actually increase the tax benefits the closer you get to direct investing. So the best thing you can do with retail tax, uh, with retail investing with taxes is to defer your tax, defer your taxes, such as an IRA or 401k. Now, you know, I know you know, since you listened to our episodes, that I believe deferring a root canal is not a great idea, right? Neither is deferring our taxes. So why would we do that? Now, you can do retail investing with things like Roth IRAs. Even though that might eliminate the taxes of the vehicle you have your real estate in, you're not able to use the Roth IRA to offset other tax benefits you could have if you own the real estate directly. For example, if you're offsetting rent income with expenses on the real estate, so you can you know, fix up the flooring in that apartment building and you can offset that rent income with the, the expenses of fixing up the floor. You can only do that outside of tax qualified plans and outside of Roth IRAs, et cetera. So you lose a lot of the tax advantages of real estate when you put it inside a Roth IRA, including self-directed Roth IRAs. And that's one of my big problems I have with self-directed Roth IRAs, as cool as they might be for some folks. So when you invest at the wholesale level, you will get some tax advantages. You're gonna get passive income too, which is pretty cool. I like passive income. But when you invest at the direct level, when you're directly the real estate professional, you can take advantage of a ton more tax benefits. It's, if, it's, if it's your business, you have the control and you have all the tax advantages. When you're actively involved, all the depreciation, all of the write-offs and all the tax credits with the cost segregations and all the other things you can do with real estate are finally available to you. You're a professional direct real estate investor. Okay, when you invest directly, you still have, unfortunately, one big villain in your financial portfolio, that, that one that's there to block you from reaching your golden years, your financial independence. Who am I talking about? The bank. You got it. You got it. The bank. They are the only other partner with you in siphoning wealth off your back when you're a direct investor. You don't have investment advisors. You don't have other people in the, fun, the private equity fund siphoning your wealth. It's just you and the bank. And we all know that the bank is especially good at taking money from you when you don't need it, right? When you don't need them to be on your back. They'll give you plenty of money when you don't need the cash, but as soon as you do need cash, boy, they're out of your business. And usually they term out your loan. So on our podcast, you know, we teach that you can even eliminate the bank, that last major siphon of wealth by becoming your own source of financing. In fact, 
you know, in this episode, we've been looking at real estate, but, you know, we could talk about retail banking too. You know, we could talk about wholesale and direct banking. So, you know, you can think about your entire financial life in terms of retail, wholesale, and direct. In fact, you could think about the function of banking at the retail, wholesale, and direct level too. Here's what I mean. Most Americans are doing retail banking. What is, it? What is that, right? That's using checking and saving accounts. They're walking in and getting CDs and money market accounts. And they walk in that same bank a month later and ask for a loan. Talk about retail price, right? I'll hand my bank $10,000 as a savings account deposit. And then a month later, I'll be walking in there begging them for a loan for 10,000 bucks. They'll hand me 0.01% interest for my savings. And then they're going to charge me 10% for the same money to be loaned to me, right? That's a thousand percent markup. I mean, come on, that's, that's talk about retail prices right there. That's crazy. But when you bank on yourself, you instantly become a wholesale banker in essence, right? Now you have taken away the middlemen. Now you've taken out all the mess that comes with traditional bank financing, credit cards, interest rates, whatever. And you are now the one operating wholesale, the bank on yourself. How cool is that? But when you become a banker in the direct sense of the word, you can go even further with this. Now we've spent most of our episodes, a hundred plus episodes in talking about wholesale banking, bank on yourself in essence is wholesale banking. You've cut out all the middlemen. You're using your own bank on yourself type whole life policy to operate all your major capital expenses, all of your cars, all of your kids' college expenses, all of your vacations, all of your retirement needs. But what if you could become a banker in the direct sense of the word? That would actually mean people are banking on you. Not bank on yourself necessarily in the traditional sense, but banking on you, okay? So family members, friends, even outside investors looking for capital, they could come to you and you could offer them as a private money lender, a chance at access to your cash, your cash value in your bank on yourself type policy. So when, when these direct or wholesale real estate investors are losing all that liquidity, remember I mentioned that earlier in the episode, they're going to need somebody who's got a big bunch of cash, especially when banks stop lending especially when we go through the next major market correction. So who might they turn to? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's the people with large amounts of cash. It's you with large amounts of cash value and life insurance policies like we've talked about on this podcast. So when you're doing banking at the direct level, you're cutting out banks. And now you can even surpass what you could do by banking on yourself, by letting other people bank on you too. So I'm not saying don't use your bank on yourself type policy to buy your cars and kids college. I'm saying in addition to that, now you can be offering lines of credit to people who are going to pay you back with interest. Now you're receiving interest that you couldn't get if you were merely banking on yourself, right? If you were just doing wholesale banking because you're charging other people the interest that they would have had to be charged at the bank down the street, maybe you can offer them an even more fair rate or a generous repayment schedule. But still, now you're collecting the money that would have gone to the line of creditors with a mortgage at a local bank. That's direct banking. And that's how you can become not just your own source of financing, but everybody else's too. Let that sink in. Let, let that, the power of that concept sink in and it might just change everything about your financial trajectory toward you reaching financial independence. So what are some takeaways here for this episode? 
First, let's determine what of your investment portfolio is retail. What is riddled with fees? Go back li- and listen to earlier in this episode when, when I listed all the fees, when we in, start to write them all down. And then ask your investment advisor how many of those fees apply to your portfolio. That's the number one takeaway. Get out of retail investing, okay? At least with the majority of your money. Number two, are you an accredited investor? If so, you can search for possible private equity funds that you could get involved with. There's a ton of websites out there. You could try crunchbase.com. They do charge a fee, I believe, to check them out, but you know, it may be worth it. It's a, certainly a nominal fee uh, if you're a, an accredited investor. So check them out and you can go really down to the local level or particular types of private equity firms that you wanna get involved with. And third, if you already have a bank on yourself policy, start budgeting some of your cash value to go toward investments. So that means you might pull out an Excel sheet or use the You Need a Budget app that we've talked about before and start naming the dollars in your cash value. It's one of the simplest and most empowering things you can do after you start your first or second or 10th bank on yourself policy. And so one of the things you might decide to budget is a little bit of cash or a lot of cash toward investments and possibly even allocating some of your cash value to be a source of money to offer lines of credit to potential borrowers. It's certainly smart to do that. So, you know, obviously you want to be wise, you want to be smart and certainly reach out to us if you have further questions about how to set that all up. And I'd be happy to help you. Just go to nyafinancialpodcast.com, click on request a meeting, and I'd be very pleased to connect you with me or one of our associates that could help you work out some of the questions you might have about becoming a direct banker, as it were, right, in essence. So I want to wrap this episode up now, and I want to make make it totally clear that I am very interested in your feedback. This is our podcast together. So one of the things I'd like to do in the next month is a question of the month. Um, so we have a special website we've set up. It's speakpipe.com forward slash NYAFP. And I'd love the question for this month is, and the one I'd love to get your feedback on is, is bank on yourself a scam? Is bank on yourself a scam? If it is, I got a couple hundred people I need to tell right away uh, of our clients and a couple thousand people every week I need to chat with uh, on this podcast that this thing that we've been talking about is a big old scam or something. If it is, boy, I need to know about it. If it isn't, I'd need to know that too, right? I hope you would too. So the question of the month is, is bank on yourself a scam? We're going to be doing some fun episodes on that in coming episodes. So check that out. Uh, next, please leave uh, leave us an iTunes review. If you go to nyafinancialpodcast.com, click on leave a review, uh, and then take a picture of your review on the iTunes store so we can see it, or Apple Podcast Store, I should say. Uh, take a picture of that and then email us at hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. We'll send you a copy of Pamela Yellen's brand new best-selling book, Rescue Your Retirement. It's her third book. And it literally just came out this fall. So I'd love to show that and share that with you guys. So with all that, I hope you'll take all of this into the holiday season. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful uh, rest of your year. And thank you very much for joining me for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. 
to join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money. Go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.